Welcome to That's No Longer My Ministry, a podcast that tells a different story about healing. A story of healing as discipline, as real, hard, and uncomfortable work. This is a place where we honor the journeys of marginalized folk actively purging years of programming and the consequence of never being centered. A place for acknowledging and moving through trauma. A place where radical self-liberation is sought and no is a complete sentence. You should listen if you're someone who wants to build the kind of life you don't need to escape from. I'm your host, Nadia, a black woman who has spent way too much time trying to fit into a number of spaces that weren't and still aren't meant for me. But that's no longer my ministry. It's a, it's a different hot here. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, you know, it's not like uh, out west hot where, you know, wildfires like that, but it's like oppressive hot, like somebody's sitting on your neck. <laughs> it's like, that's like that northeast hot. Oh, yeah. No, I'm in Oakland. It's not hot like that. Yeah. yeah like yeah. ever. It's, <laughs> it's We got the heat wave on the west coast and the heat in the Bay Area. It couldn't afford the rent here. So it just it never showed up. That's it tried. It just It was like 60 degrees here and 112 in Seattle. And I was like, I don't I don't know what you we're know. a part of here, but make it make sense. I'm like, is this an experiment? <laughs> just like I just let me in on like whoever's doing this, just let me know if this is an experiment. Right. Cause we're all we're all losing it a little bit. So yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the first time I've done an episode with someone I've never met before. So, so like, it's like a blind date podcast. Like, <laughs> see how this goes. It's true. It's true. And I'm here for the blind date. The good thing about that is that I have no idea where this conversation is going to go. And that's exciting because I think it's it's nice to hold different people's healing stories who I, I can't anticipate what you're going to say, which is great. Right. Right. Um, you might come in here with something wild and crazy that I can't even use. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, producers, yeah, edit that one out. <laughs> the first question I ask everybody on the podcast is how are you feeling right now in your mind and your body? I'm good. I mean, I'm hot, but I'm good. I'm good. I think, um, you know, let me qualify that because I, I think it, it, we so quickly like, yeah, how are you doing? And it's like, I'm good. Like, oh yeah, great. Right. But honestly, I'm exhausted with regard to like the pandemic. Right. And, and I think more so of watching kind of the national thought process of people thinking like, well, if I'm good, then my sphere of influence, like we're fine. And what, like, it's so odd and yet not surprising to see that piece play out of like individualism and people are just like solely concerned about their small little subset of the civilization, right? Right, <laughs> yeah. Like when there was news about how India was just massively hit after the US has been trending better and everybody was like, wait, what? India is a country out there that's yeah. experiencing this? Like, it's. It, it, I, it, to watch that play out and for people, 
you know, and, and I, I feel like we're going to end up talking about this because, I mean, certainly in terms of health equity, something I care deeply about, but of that, like, a little bit of that paradigm, the, the convergence paradigm where it's like until it is important to, you know, the people in power, it won't be important to the national consciousness or the policies and practice, things of that nature. And that, I mean, we're seeing it with COVID, right? It's, oh my God, someone then loses a family member and now they're like, we need to mask up. We need to do all this. And, and just watching that play out, it's exhausting. And we, I have a, a, my daughter's going to be four next month. Aww. And I'm like almost grateful she's not of like school age, like going into like, you know, because like that, that is a, a thing, right? Like that's a whole thing we'll be dealing with certainly in, in the fall up here, places down South for sure already started school and, and we're seeing the, the ramifications of that and of their policy. So it, it's crazy. It's yeah. a little bit nuts. That all said, I'm over here sipping on some seltzer, <laughs> which I, I fell in love with seltzer like later on in life, like Brussels sprouts and you know, you think you're like a kid, like, well, how, how did they not tell me all of this was good okra? I used to hate okra as a kid. And now I'm like, you know what? This is like really good. I was like, you can't say you hate okra to Nigerian. I, <laughs> I grew up, okra was like every meal. Somehow it was incorporated and it was, I've always loved okra. So yeah, yeah. So, but you know, now I'm over here. I got a fresh seltzer, so I'm good. Good. I'm drinking my coffee. I think so. We're in two different time zones. So I'm right. like starting my day. I feel like you've probably had your day going for a few right. hours. Right. And you know, with a almost four year old, I'm I, my day started four years ago. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't slept since. That's so true. I forget about that because my brother has. Um, well, I have a niece and two nephews. My brother's mm -hmm. kids, and he's up at like six. Like they're like, let's go. We want right. to get up. We want to start our day. And he's like, can I just sleep till like eight? That would be sleeping in. Right. Like the son looks at me and says, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> like, it's fine. So the listeners don't know. I've never met you before. This is the first mm -hmm. time we're having a conversation. So in this introduction, I would love for you to share with listeners and me a little bit about who you are and what are the values that inform who you are? So I'm Franz. Berthod, Haitian-American, uh, born in, in, in New York, huge Yankees fan, I'll say four-year-old daughter, uh, met my wife in college at Boston College, where I also met Jody and sh shout outs to her. Yes. And I am a uh, healthcare administrator. Um, I work in kind of strategy and operations at a, a cancer research hospital here in, in Boston, Massachusetts. As such, I'm, I lost my eldest sister to, to cancer roughly four years ago. So a huge advocate, especially for Black women within the cancer space and health equity uh, and, and hope transforming healthcare organizations with that lens so that they can care for everyone the way that people deserve to be cared for. And I think the values that kind of drive that are loss, grief, right? Like yeah. if you want a driver in life, man, lose something. Oh <laughs> you gosh. Know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that'll drive you to do some things. But also optimism. I'm an internal optimist. It, it, in light of right the pandemic, yeah. in light of all of social unrest and how exhausting all of that is, I'm a, a hustler of hope. 
right? If I can't sell you something, I'm going to sell you some hope though. I got that little trench coat, open the trench coat. There's just vials of hope. Like I got that for you. And I think working in the cancer space and and having lost um, someone and and just in any equity space, whether it's health equity or, or broadly, you got to have a little bit of that and, and be a harbinger of that, carry that from one place to the next, because that's the thing. That's the, the last, the, after you exhaust all options, the last thing you have is hopefully is that. Um, so I, I try to kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. And I'm sorry to hear about your sister's passing. Oh, I'm curious you. You. how you've maintained that optimism and how you carry all those vials of hope when you've lost someone so close to you. And when you work in a field where you're losing people. For sure. Right. You almost, there's an expectation that we will lose people. So ironically enough, right. I think like working in a cancer hospital in this space almost prepared me with the understanding of this pandemic, with the thought that like, if there's an expectation, we'll be, we will lose people. What can we do to ensure that those who are here have access to all the care, access to the, the medicine, access to the research, right? Kind of democratizing, demystifying research. I mean, I've I've been around research my entire professional career, but I think now we're seeing large demographics of people, so other people who haven't had been that close to research now have to, like you almost have to have an understanding of yeah. how research works, which is wild because th- they've been gatekeepers to research for so long, yeah. but it's those same people now who are like, oh, but we need you to listen to us and understand. It's like, y'all weren't even, y'all weren't giving us the glossary from jump and now you right. want us to believe you. And so I have to take a little bit of that when I'm, you know, telling my people, it's like, you know, you got to get this vaccine. Like, yeah, I'm not sure about that juice they got in there. Like, right. I'm like you're right. And, <laughs> and it's like, take it. You got to pull all of these things into context. And so for me, I think having lost uh, with understanding how things are working in the world right now, like, how do I keep that hope and specifically with this one I think about my sister and I, I think about especially minoritized or marginalized communities and then you know we black people call each other brother or sister like and and I, I like that's a real thing and so when I think about having lost my sister what can I do to ensure I don't lose more sisters more brothers yeah. right more elders more oh that's my auntie that's my play cousin right like mm-hmm. if you think about kind of the the global family so what can I do to make sure that I don't lose any other family members or that others don't experience that grief that level of grief that you know that I have that I've had to work through and I think that's a big deal for me is that if people can see that I've maintained hope Mm-hmm. like damn that gives them a little permission but i you know maybe i can I, there's a little glimmer of that over here too that really perfectly transitions us into the first segment which is called so you've been told where we unpack different common sayings in this case i was like what would be most relevant to our conversation you're in health we've already started talking about the pandemic so i did the one thing that i really have been avoiding doing this whole pandemic, which is I went into Google, I typed COVID-19 and I let the headlines just show up. And I picked a few headlines for us to unpack together. I'm so sorry. (laughs) 
but all right let's let's do this i got my let me I, take another sip of this fresh seltzer right you're gonna have to take something because this is it's like exactly what we've been talking about the first headline i wanted to pull is something that i've been thinking about and talking about within my own community related to black people who are not vaccinated yet mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. The first headline, which I didn't realize that you were from New York when I pulled this, was why only 28% of young Black New Yorkers are vaccinated. And this was, I think, an article that came out maybe two days ago. So this is pretty fresh. And I'd love to hear from you. I think one thing that is more common in conversations about why Black people are not rushing to get vaccinated is the distrust of the healthcare system, reasonably right. so. But I'd love to hear from you in the healthcare system, what are the many different angles? Like that is one thing, but like you said, access is another thing. And so I would love to hear from you on that. Absolutely. Everybody's been talking about the, the calling it hesitancy, right? Oh, vaccine hesitancy. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of being really, I live by the watch and mouth creed. Right? You know, but, <laughs> So I'm very perceptive of the language that we use. And even in the space now, when people say vaccine hesitancy, and you know what that does is it puts it on that the individual puts it on that group of people as if like they don't want to get the vaccine because something's wrong with them. Right. And like, and then that's what we're doing. That's the language we're doing. What it doesn't take into account, people often talk about the historical context of like Tuskegee. Yep you know, during the enslavement of Africans and they're like, oh, the experiments and this and this and this, Sarah Bartlett. And I'm like, yes, yes. all of that. <laughs> and the shit that's happening now, part of my French, um, that's happening now, it, like the contemporary examples where you're seeing the maternal rates, mortality rates, you know, Black women giving birth or Black birthing people, then boom, they're like, there's got to be something wrong with them. And it's like, no, what about the system that's at play here? What are we missing with regard to access to medicine, not believing people with regard to pain or assuming people have different thresholds of pain based on their ethnic or racial makeup? I'm like, these are some real things that are happening today in our major metropolitans, right? Today in New York City, you know, in, in Boston, in places that arguably have some of the best healthcare systems um, in the country. What a travesty it is that these disparities remain. I can un understand and empathize in looking at those percentages. And even if you look at, you know, like what are the percentages of Black or, or Black Indigenous people of color, clinicians, physicians, nurse practitioners, right? Like the nurses, like who? who are telling the patients to get vaccinated. There's less of us in those spaces than there are of them. And so what that means is, again, the messengers, mm -hmm. um, the harbingers of like, hey, the research is good. Like, this is going to be helpful. Like, who they're getting that information from often are the same faces and the likeness of the historical context of racism in medicine, contemporary, someone who didn't believe them. If, if one day your PCP distrusts you, like, hey, you haven't been taking your blood pressure medicine. And then the next day it's like, you should take this vaccine. It's like, man, why would I listen to you? Right. You chastise me every time I come in as if I'm some child, right? Mm -hmm. um, but this is what we're dealing with. And I think what we've yet 
to crack that code is understanding how do we reach people where they are? You know, we start talking about access, some of these vaccine sites, you know, um, especially when they first started, they weren't in any centralized location, right? They, right. they were far off uh, as an example in, in um, Massachusetts, one of the first vaccine sites was Foxborough Stadium where the New England Patriots, the football team plays. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever been to Foxborough. It's like a. <laughs> I haven't even really heard of it. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah Foxborough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds, yeah, sounds great. Um, <laughs> like, and, and so what that means is how do you expect, we're talking about life-saving vaccine, how do you expect them to get there? It basically means anyone with the means of transportation to get out there will be able to be the first ones to receive the vaccine. We are intrinsically to the system. We're creating points of non-access that will fall on the same people it always falls on. Those who have to take public transportation, those who um, are the frontline workers and they can't take a day off, right? That, that's unpaid, kind of all of these things. And so we often, the solutions for one thing, we're working within the infrastructure of a system that was never built for us. And I'm like, of, of course, there are gonna be vaccine disparities. Yeah. The first thing they say is like, man, you know, black people don't want to take the vaccine. It's like, okay, what else? Right. No, what else? What else is at play here? Yeah. And I even think about, I know that they set up, I can't remember where in Detroit, they set up a place for people to get vaccinated there because it has such a high black population. So mm-hmm. they know that this is a community that's disproportionate proportionately impacted. And right. I remember reading stories. It was like the people who were showing up to that site were all white people who are driving in from out of town. I even, I got vaccinated here in Oakland at a site that was specifically meant for people of color. And so it, was, it wasn't really publicized as a site, but people of color would pass this information along. And I remember showing up, there were a lot of white people in the line ahead of me. And I'm like, you're showing up to places once again, you don't belong. <laughs> Facts, right? <laughs> like, I don't know how many times we have to tell you that not everything is for you. But in this case, like, this is a targeted initiative to try to get more people of color vaccinated. They're more highly impacted than you. And here you are in this space. You should not be. I'm like, who, who 40 the newsletter? How did you find out <laughs> right. to even come here? This is, this is FUBU. This is for us, by us. This is, that's what they should have. They should have had FUBU do the marketing for the vaccine. Right, because white people wouldn't know what that meant. They would be confused. <laughs> they wouldn't show up. Right, I, be, I believe that's a, a one of those principles from uh, Kwanzaa, FUBU. I believe that's one of them, <laughs> one of the days. And, and that's so crazy, right? Like, to, to think, like, they specifically, the, the whether, I don't want to say marketing, but putting it together specifically for people of color, like, this is a place where they already reside, make it as easy as possible in that sense of entitlement to just kind of bully your way through. Like, yeah. well, of course I'm going to get this. Right? I heard this, some story of some like soul cycle instructor who said they were a frontline worker so that they can get the vaccine first. And I'm like, yo, I, get out of here. It says soul cycle that it does nothing to, about your soul. Like you are not, <laughs> this is not, you're not a frontline worker is not that important uh, i'm sorry and, and and there was also i think a, a neighborhood in and maybe in, in harlem like in spanish harlem or somewhere um in new york city where there were more 
non-residents of the neighborhood who receive vaccines at that site and specifically white people um, like versus in comparison to the people who actually live there, which is predominantly like Latinx and Hispanic. And it's like, that's great. That means y'all traveled. Right. Y'all never came this far uptown before. Never felt you safe there, it. I'm sure. No, right, right. Like I never go past 96th Street. But like, here you are up here to get the vaccine. It's wild. And these are not things, I feel like these are not things that are showing up in these headlines. These are not conversations that are happening. And that leads me into the next headline, because I think this is something that is showing up more and more as we keep staying inside, which is the anger toward unvaccinated people is personal for some who got breakthrough COVID. So now we're getting a lot of people who are like, we hate the unvaccinated. It's your fault. This is taking too long. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, so it's a little wild, right? Because now you got people walking around, like looking at each other real shady, like why are you wearing a mask, right? And it's hard because like you won't be able to force people to get the vaccine. People ask me all the time, like Franz, like, what do you, what do you think? Like, should we, yes, in terms of if you want to gamble, you have a better hand in this card game if you're vaccinated. Like we'll, we'll leave it at that. But what we then can't do is shame the same people who are hesitant or apprehensive about receiving the vaccine into getting it, right? Like you're going to into basically what, what would equate to like medical treatment. Like that's never going to work. If people haven't gotten the vaccine by now, and as we're seeing kind of the Delta variant dis- just ravaging, you know, the, the nation in terms of cases going up and, and people people passing, is shame going to be the driver to to push those those people? Like, you're going to try to appease to, like, Catholic guilt or something? I'm not <laughs> quite sure what, what it is that they think is going to be the what tips the threshold. Like, oh, yeah, once you shame them, I think, I think that's when they're going to do it. So we got to be really cautious and conscious about that piece, um, especially as a lot of healthcare organizations are mandating the vaccine and, and understandably so as they should. I mean, like this is, yeah. if, if anywhere is going to do it, it's going to be the same places that people are going to come to receive the, the treatments yeah. um, from COVID-19. So it's going to keep happening, I think. We live in a society where exclusivity is super hot. Like if yeah. you were to tell people like, yo, yo, not everyone's going to get this vaccine. There's only so much of it left. So like, maybe you should, they might line up like they're about to buy Yeezys, right? Right. Like that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. I gotta be, I gotta be inside the club. I can't be hating from outside. <laughs> and you're starting to see a lot of, Places are trying to incentivize people to get it. Like you know, ca- capitalism is weird, yo. It is mad predictable. <laughs> like people, yeah. Are like, what if we give them all a hundred dollars? What if we pay them now? Like that's I, like how is that going to change their distrust? Like now, like, now we're going to pay you. Y'all had a hundred dollars just laying around this whole time, and we got people without housing, food insecurity. But you had a hundred dollars for each person to get the vaccine. I'm like, wait, where were you sitting on that Scrooge McDuck? Where were you hiding all of this money in these, like, especially these major metropolitan areas? Or like we have the Vax Millions here in Massachusetts, a little lottery for people who are vaccinated. You register and it's like five people are going to win a million dollars. 
And I'm That's... just like, uh, let me think here. Y'all just had five mil. What could we do with that instead of <laughs> like, what could we do with that five million? That's what we're doing with it, right? You could, that's so much money. You might be able to pay the Delta variant. Be like, yo, can you just leave? Here's some Back money. off. Why don't you just leave? Like, Take oh, your yeah, friends I, with you. All right, yo, my bad. My bad. I'll leave now. <laughs> that's wild. I did not hear about that. But I do, yeah. I mean, I know there are a lot of different efforts trying to get people to do this, but I do not think paying is going to, I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel all kinds of weird about that approach. I said reparations. I didn't say vax millions. <laughs> right. And then the last one, actually, I, I selected this one because of the language. And so I think it's interesting that you spoke to paying attention to words. And so this mm -hmm. headline caught my attention because it, it, it says the U.S. healthcare system, in quotes, is breaking, expert says, as COVID-19 hospitalizations for people in their 30s hit a new high. I don't want to respond quite yet. I would love to hear from you. <laughs> the fact that it's the healthcare system is now breaking mm. now that, you know, 30 to 40 year olds are getting hit with COVID in a way that they didn't anticipate at the beginning. Right, right. Well, because they're just like uh, the old people, like if they that, you know, it's par for the course, right? Like, right, right. As if, you know, like people are just, you know, but to to your point, the the use of the kind of active language Right. is breaking if you were to ask minoritized marginalized communities they'd be like uh since 1776 <laughs> <laughs> i was like y'all just now figuring it out it's breaking but this is also the same group of people they're like um racism seems to be systemic right it seems to rear itself everywhere like but right. this is the the this national awakening to like so many things is it's odd it's very odd to me because you know america is like a teenager the attention span is very fickle right like i think that one day we're talking about this and then it's boom boom the media shifts and then we're talking about something else and so with that even this regard people are like okay 30 to 39 year olds i'll say and, and this could be just straight conjecture. I think why that's a big deal when the, what the country is considering is that's the driving force for the next wave in terms of economics, right? Because, okay, boomer, you know, the whole, the whole like grouping of people past that, I've always wanted to say that because I, I don't like, see with it. I don't, don't hate on the boomers. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's a grandparent. What, what is wrong with you? Um, like the the dragon force and they look a lot like you and i right it's mm -hmm. multicultural our understanding of ourselves and of society is very different i think than many other generations and how we choose to spend our money i think differs in a way that it hasn't generations prior um, and so we're talking about a huge economic life force that they expect to be spending money for generations to you don't want that group of people to get sick and die. You don't want that. Not the way capitalism works. Right. They're like, please stay alive. So it'll be interesting, the response um, from all the same people. Like, you can't shut down the country. You can't do this. It's now like, okay, well, yeah, this is going to hurt us if we don't do something about it. It's, it's, we, we are, there's such a, um, 
we're at this apex and it's like all roads are leading to like this one place. But I, I, I don't think anyone knows or has full comprehension of what that destination is. Mm. But we know that we're at that kind of inflection point. We're at that tipping point of like, all right, we got to do something because the way that Latin works, we're at Delta. You know, there's a lot more than there's Omega. I Like, I don't <laughs> even want to get to the Omega variant. That's Thanos. That is but you don't want to see that. And so the way it's working, like in terms of vaccination and you're hearing words like herd immunity, mm-hmm. it's like we have to get to a point when there are way more vaccinated people than unvaccinated people, because we know that there's going to be individuals who refuse to get vaccinated. Yeah, We just want that number to be much a smaller percentage of the population so that it's more or less the 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 variants have nowhere to like change to to morph right. to to transform like there's you know COVID trying to jump from one body to the next it's like yo ain't nobody here you know like <laughs> ain't nobody here to like yeah. I don't like these bodies these bodies are whack right like so and I like we need to get right in layman's terms if they should hey. just ask me like Biden call me if you want me to talk to people. Right. Real way about the vaccine. Like explain it in a way that we can understand. (laughs) Or just have like juvenile and like vax vax that thing up or whatever. Have you seen the video? No. Oh, they remade back that ass up. Um, Like Cashman, the record's taken over in that nine, 2000. And it was like vax that thing up or or something. Yeah. I was like, all right, more more power to you. Save Louisiana. When you're at a wedding and you hear cash money records taken on 992,000, like people will go get vaccinated. Like, I think it's true. That's true. That's true. true. As we close out this segment, I would ask you, what would you say to someone who's, who does encounter someone who's like vehemently opposed to getting vaccinated? What is a better approach than shame and all of these other tactics that we know aren't working? How do we even open the door to getting them to rethink it? I think sharing what your why is as an individual, right? I think, and and it's not, people are often trying to appeal or evoke some sort of emotion out of people. Um, But it's super important that we share why for us. And if that is something that then provokes something within that, that person, like, you know, let me consider this, then absolutely. Right. I think it's super important that we start sharing it, which we don't. I think people are once again, the the kind of pressure is on that other individual. And we're not looking at it as this like symbiotic relationship of like, what can I give that then this person like we can benefit from in that part of the conversation? And and it might be something that appeals to them, something that that means something to them, like, hey, I want to go see my my grandmother, or I want to go do this, I want to do that, or I have an immunocompromised child at home. And my only way to ensure that 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 child is is safe is if I get vaccinated, if everyone around me gets vaccinated, things of that nature that like, it's not always, we often look so much at the individual and not think about that the collective. And, and I think that's just a, a better approach is is appealing to people's uh, collective sense. I think we're we're a very communal people, right? Right, but yeah. 
by nature, by survival, perhaps. And I think like, how do we flex that part of reminding people that we are uh, a, a collective and, and we're part of saving each other? I'm like, this is the, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think for me, I think that that has to be it because the, the shame or the individual pressure situations that we start to put people in, like, it's one of two ways people respond to that. And the likely version is defensiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Defensiveness and like shutting down. Like I just, I I think that some people try to even approach it. Like, let me just shove all this research in your face. And that is also not effective because then they might come back with their own. (laughs) Like I had someone who passed along an article from world star about why they shouldn't get vaccinated. And I was like, we're getting our health information from WorldStar now? Yeah, I'm like, that's, you, that it's, but that's, that's the thing, right? Is the internet is the most wonderful, terrible place. Right? Yeah, it's It scary. is wonderfully terrible because of that. Like for every piece of data, datum that I can produce around why vaccines work, why people should get vaccinated, the analogies people are using, like what if there's a a fire and you're the only one and it's like people keep trying to do these and appeal to all of these. Some people are, it's like racism and like they are making these analogies in an effort to get people to like comprehend, understand. I'm like speaking louder to someone doesn't make them hear you better. Right. And I think that's what we're doing. And the same way that we're able to find all of this research and all of this information, we're throwing it at, at people. I'm like, there's a whole other side. There's a whole nother campaign that has way more time on their hands than us. Right. And they are producing misinformation, reproducing misinformation. I'm like, yo, if y'all have put that energy towards anything else i'm like we might we might do something with that we might climate change would have been fixed yeah that's real that's so real from that one i'm just like yo oh you there's a really big problem hunger all right let me call the racists up because i think they're gonna figure this one out like they they got a lot of time to forget a lot of time with their kids Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. Thank you for your wisdom on that. But now we've got to my favorite segment, which is the meat of the podcast, which is me asking you, what is no longer your ministry? I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm like, (laughs) okay, this is the title of the podcast. So I better have a good answer. With regard to like everything that's happened now, social unrest and national awakening. And there's a lot of organizations who are like, we're going to do diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, belonging. Like, this is, we're going to fix this because it matters to us. Black Lives Matter. And like all of the, they're doing this, Black Squares on Instagram, right? That like everyone, there's this hyper focus on this particular subject matter within organizations, certainly within healthcare organizations, right? Mm -hmm. Every hospital is like, we really need to fix health equity, disparities, like all of the language. What is no longer my ministry is understanding that with regard to health equity or equity in general, our reparations, our validation is not gonna come via their salvation, right? I think often non-people of color are 
seeking to be saved or unlabeled a certain way, especially when you think like critical race theory, like they, they want us to say like, you're okay with me, Joan, you're great, you're fine. <laughs> but like that of saving them from themselves, unlabeling them, whatever you want to call it, like that will not in turn yield my liberation. And it is within organizations, it is very hard to come to that conclusion because if they're in the positions of power, their comfort often is our lifeline. Yeah. Is the the make it or break it like, yeah, we this ain't gonna work because they're uncomfortable, or hey, this might work if you curate it, if you approach it this way. And so for me, you know, what's no longer my ministry is their salvation. Yeah. I love the way you put that. That is so true in that so many conversations I have about this at work, I work in tech and there's a lot of conversations on diversity, equity, inclusion, and I lead a racial equity initiative. And the conversations I have to have with these people where I'm really, my purpose is to, to let them know that they're okay. Mm -hmm. Like really the purpose that I'm serving is so that they feel less like a racist. Right. I've been very clear. I was like, I can't, I can't do that for you. I hope you understand that. Like when I came in through the door, I was like, I just want you to know that I inherently think you're a racist. I do. And I can tell you why in a lot of conversations to follow. Like, I won't just say that without backing myself up or, or giving you the data points that you so <laughs> desire. But like, if this work is going to work, I can't just sit here and be like, yes, yes. Everything right. you just said. I now believe that you are the white exception. Mm. Right. I, I I can see your mouth, right? You do the, you know, the inverted, like non-aggressive, like I'm non-aggressive black lips, like, mm, mm. Uh-huh. right. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Uh, and it, 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 it's true though, that oftentimes things won't even move in terms of initiatives until those people are in positions of comfort. And yet we know nothing changes unless there is some reason, some catalyst to move you. People need to be moved like from a existential standpoint, from a physical organizational, like we literally use the word move, like, oh, I was moved. And it's like that, that means you were displaced. You need to get out of where you were before. And I think there's an inability, a non-desire to actually do that work. Like we're going to have difficult conversations and I'm like, difficult for who? (laughs) I'm 30, I'm 35 years old. I've had this conversation since I walked out of the womb. Like what do you, and I think like that, it's even that, like the, the point of orientation to even the work is centered in whiteness mm-hmm. like so it's like so how do we actually take that focal point away decenter the whiteness in order to center everyone else where where the problem or people that are impacted by systemic racism the most and you certainly within organizations i don't have an answer for that like <laughs> it because we are within the same like this the system is in, incredible in how it produces and reproduces itself. Yeah. Like, unbelievable. Brilliant, to be honest. It's, it's, I'm like, I'm floored. 
like every day I'm like, oh, so that happened. Okay. Cause that was designed. <laughs> like, how did y'all figure all of this out in order to like royally for hundreds of years fuck us over? <laughs> like, damn. Like, who is some alien making the code in the background? Like, how did y'all do that? This is incredible. <laughs> like, and so to go back to why it's no longer my ministry, Carl Jung, the like psychiatrist and, you know, writer, mm -hmm. um, he talks about this archetype of the wounded healer. And it's often in, in therapy, counseling, the thought is the therapist or the person, if they've been wounded, right, in the past, and, and so they almost have context around wounds and understanding about the pain, it enables them to be able to connect to the wounded and then get them through the process to like healing. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's pretty interesting. And I think there's, there's a, a, an alignment there or an analogy with people of color within organizations where we are often the wounded but we're now being tasked to heal the organization. And I'm like, that's a lot. Y'all are asking us yeah. to fix a problem we didn't create and to fix a system and often organizations that perpetually harm us. I'm like, that's a very big ask. Mm -hmm. You know, like in order for us to do that, there has to be some element of like Stockholm syndrome. Like <laughs> we are in love with our captors. Like <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to help fix this. I'm like, every day, y'all doing this to me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, I, and I'm curious, too, because you mentioned that these conversations have really become trendy, I guess, for lack of better other right, words, right. after this year, after this year of social unrest. Okay. Right. <laughs> right? But I'm curious because, like, I know that you've been doing this work for a long time. You've been an advocate for health equity for a long time. And so how were you received before these conversations started happening, when you were the one bringing these conversations to the surface? Fantastic question. You know, prior to, it was one of two ways. So it's like, you're a rabble rouser, or there was an ability for the organization to say like, yeah, we're going to do that. Let's wait, let's wait. Yeah, we're going to do that, right? Like to appease people of color, appease people doing yeah. this work, but hold them off. And they've been doing that for centuries. And I think that what occurred, especially with social unrest and organizations feeling this, you know, imperative to meet the demands of racial equity is this and, and gender equity is, is this that like, okay, we have to do something because everyone's doing something. And if you right. don't, as an organization, you're going to be labeled, you know, X, Y, Z. And so there was now this sense of urgency so now the organizations are willing to have the conversations to talk about doing it. Mm -hmm. My fear is the performative nature of even the conversations. Right. Right. It's like if we keep talking, but we wait long enough, national consciousness changes, the news cycle changes, and we don't have to address it anymore. And we can go back to saying like, yeah, we'll do that next year. We're like, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, there's no more money in the budget. It's the boom, 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 all of these things. We're at that precipice of we have to make those transformations really quickly yeah. and do them now because in X number of months and a year, organizations are not going to be talking about this. 
the way that every organization is hiring for a chief belonging officer or you know, I love whatever. that. I love that it's always belonging, <laughs> you know, like something soft. <laughs> you know, it's it's like it's always like the chief hug officer. I'm like, oh, this person, their task is to hug people. I mean, this is wild. But it, it is to, to that point of even in, in name and title, it's when we want the focus to be on racial equity, they'll rope in everything. And it's like, by design, I think it's confusion by dilution mm-hmm. by inclusion, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's this idea of like, okay, so we're going to do this for Black people to like, ooh, we need to be more inclusive. Everybody. And yeah. it's for everyone. And so what that does is it dilutes that focus that we were harnessing our energy at this particular thing, but now it has to be allocated across. And I'm like, yes, while everyone should have these things, we won't get there until we do it for the most marginalized, minoritized of the groups. And it's the work is tide rising you look at the civil rights movement and what that did for all other marginalized groups and, and demographics. I'm like it's the same within these organizations when they're creating policies around disability or you're creating policies around people of color. I'm like, it's going to literally benefit every single other person in the organization. Yeah. Well, and I think something that I've always found frustrating is that in these kinds of conversations, just like what you said, if we are looking at the most marginalized person, then we are looking at everybody's needs. But in these conversations, especially in the spaces I'm in, it's like, okay, it's time to focus on black people. Mm-hmm. And then they say, oh, well, 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 what happens to everybody else? Why are we leaving everybody else behind? And then I respond, but they've already been included. And we're looking at the people who are not being included, which is why this is an inclusion effort. Like I'm confused at why you think suddenly because we're focusing on people who are not in the circle, everybody in the circle certainly is just gonna run away and like not like, why is that a fear of yours that suddenly the attention is not on you anymore? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like in certainly an organization, they leverage the like scarcity concept a lot. Yes. I mean, you just think every year we're like, hey, it's budget time. And it's like, hey, but it's only one pie. And it can you give this slice away and you give this. And it's like, come on. The scarcity model is pervasive enough that impacts kind of all of society. And yet we got you can you can get a hundred dollars if you get the vaccine. Oh, you get registered to win a million dollars, you get the vaccine. I'm like, where's the scarcity model? I thought y'all said there was only a finite you know, amount of, of pie. And now y'all got, oh yeah, we also got cake in the back. And it's like, how, how did this happen? And it's like, so how are even organizations leveraging that same ideology, that same thinking of like, well, we can't give the black people resource and attention now, because what about our LGBTQ, you know, employee resource group? And what about this? What about this? And then slicing the identity pie so thin as if intersectionality doesn't exist like I promise you people are going to benefit if you just do this right right I don't know I don't know 
why they think like that. You would assume people would have a more full and, and robust perception of their own organizations that and like a, a fullness of like, if we do this, it's going to benefit everyone. We're going to be more full, but they're like, no, we only have this. And so we can only separate the crumbs to these groups. And it's, it's an odd way of thinking, but I'm, I'm sure again, as we kind of alluded to, it's by design. Right. And I think one thing too, just to go back to what you said was no longer ministry. It's this, if we designate this amount for you, because now we're going to focus on black people, that means that I personally have been doing something terribly wrong. And so if I allocate that money, suddenly I'm being accountable to all of my mishaps and therefore I'm the problem. And I don't want to be the problem. I want to be the solution. Isn't that wild? Like, How'd you spend that? How'd you, what? DJ Khaled, how did you spin that record to the way that it is now right back to you? It, it, especially when we're talking funding. And mm-hmm. I, like I always tell people, I'm like, well, you know who should be held accountable? Accounting. I'm like, how the, <laughs> it's literally like, yes, that's what their literal job. Should, we should give money. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Like, it's literally their job. And I'm yeah. like, that, that's where we start. Like, oh, where should we start? There's so much money, <laughs> like, like the money, like equity, social equity, economic equity within organizations, give the resources. Oh, you have, we now have a chief, whatever, whatever, diversity and belonging. How many staff does that person have? How big is their department? Right. And it's, it's that I'm like, give the resources, give the money give the the social capital and the organizational capital for that person to wield and be able to make transformative changes. Otherwise, it's not real. And my concern, again, is that it's it's performative, it's in vain, we're feigning change. And then, you know, next year when these same organizations have their annual diversity reports, they'll be able to say, look, look how many conversations we've had. If the metric was conversations, you know, mad companies are doing very well right now. Extremely well. Like, <laughs> but you know, but it's interesting because when those reports come out and then they show the diversity of their employee base after all of these conversations have happened, some of them will have like less than 1% increase in there, especially in black people in tech. So this is my space, not health. Um, but right. you, you'll see like less than a percent and they're like, see, we're improving. And if you, if you said like in sales, like, oh, see, we did a 1% sales. So like the company's going under. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, what are your value systems? Like, yeah. what are you prioritizing? Right? Because if you keep that same energy, the right. energy you give towards sales, do that towards people and changing what the overall demographic of the organization looks like y'all do that i'm like we might be might do something with that we might be somewhere i don't know i don't know either i, I really don't, don't. it's like <laughs> i mean once like again the fetus. i don't know, I don't know. <laughs> we're both full of hope but we, we are confused yeah. too um, <laughs> those two things can exist at the same time exactly we could hold both of those So as we look at the next segment, it's the work for me. We're really talking about how we go inward and try to actually do the work of healing. So in this space and all of these conversations you're probably having on a daily basis and any kind of 
resistance you meet along the way. How do you use that to continue on this journey of optimism and hope and really do the work of actively healing in the face of this? That's an incredible question. And I think it brings me back to my sister, right? I constantly have to recenter my why. What that does, it it forces me to always ask people theirs. It's incredible to understand what drives people because it will illuminate for anyone why people behave the way they do Mm. and why they're choosing to do things or, or why they're resistant to certain things. And so because I know my why is profound for me, right? And maybe not for others, like it's profound for me, I'm able to show up for myself, for my people in a very clear way. Like I'm Teflon, like I got, you know, I got a guardian angel, like, so whatever weapons y'all try to form against me (laughs) shall not prosper. (laughs) But it it is this sense of like, I can show up in the, in that, because I have a full understanding of, of why I'm here and in the work that needs to be done. And it's a very strong existential foothold. Like I know exactly my, my reason for being and understand, like it wasn't always that way and and unfortunately having to lose someone incredibly close has helped me gain perspective and insight in a way that I don't know if I would have yeah or or if I would have gotten there yet right like maybe 10 15 years from now like okay I know my place on this planet what I hope to do from now until I leave this earth but it's that it's understanding that the the being able to discern what my occupation is from my vocation, right? What mm. what am I called to do mm-hmm. versus what I wake up and do every day? And I think that there's a huge difference. And for me, the healing nature of that is it's a bit circuitous. Like I find healing in talking about my sister's journey as an example, certainly of what it feels like to be a Black woman going through a cancer journey. Um, And then it being this, uh, not necessarily like a cautionary tale, but like just illuminating as an example of like, this is what happens and this is what can happen. And so I can show up, like, how do I then show up for those people that need me. They don't know me. I don't know them. And I think that's, there's a little bit of, um, it relieves the pressure a bit because it's, it's not that I'm doing it for a certain person, but I am certainly doing it for certain people. Mm. And I think that, that helps, that helps drive it um, home for me. Yeah. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your sister's story? Cause I, You know, it's come up a couple times, her experience is a cautionary tale. I'm curious to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So my sister passed away four years ago from triple negative breast cancer. She was diagnosed at the age of 39 and passed away 13 months later at the age of 40. So very aggressive cancer. My sister was a nurse and the way she found it was like, "Mm, something doesn't feel right. Right. I'm going to go to my PCP and they're like, that's just fat. She's like, listen, that's not, 
we need to do something about this. And, and I remember her reaching out to me. I was like, all right, let's get you to see the experts. Let's get you like screening, like at the age of 40 is, is, is the recommendation for getting a um, mammogram. And so she wasn't there yet at that age to, yeah. to get her mammogram. But I'm like, let's, let's get you, to, let's figure this out. And it's like, boom, she gets the cancer diagnosis. And I'm like, you see, like, even as a medical professional, she wasn't believed, but advocated for herself. And at that point, I'm like, had she have just been like, okay, I'm going to believe them, even yeah. if this doesn't feel right. And it's like, would we have had four weeks? Would we have had four months? Right. We got 13. Yeah. And, and we just don't know. And so I look at it as how can I look at from a, a timeline and linear standpoint of how much more time can I give other families of color? Yeah. Right. And I know that it's not an immediate change and it's like the, the people that may see the fruits of this labor might be a decade from now, two decades from now, but I'm like, but I got to do it. Right. Like yeah. if I knew the world were going to end tomorrow, I would still plant an apple tree today. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's a, I think that's something so important to emphasize. I don't think people really understand how poorly black women are treated in, in healthcare. I, I've just heard so many stories from my girlfriends who are like, you know, I've communicated that this is wrong. I know this is not supposed to be happening in my body. And their doctor's just like, oh yeah, no, it's okay because this is normal and, and just blow it off. And even, so my mom's a nurse and mm -hmm. it took me several, it probably took me until a couple of years ago to realize just how much it's, it's mattered that she's been in the room with me with a lot of healthcare professionals. I just remember so many cases where I would be at the doctor's office and they'll be like, well, we'll just do this. And my mom would be like, how about we try this, this, and this? Like she would always be in the room being like, actually, I want to suggest a different approach. And I didn't realize how much of a difference it had made until when I lived in Seattle, I, there was a personal problem I had and I went to a doctor and she was like, I've just never seen this before. And it was like the most like scare tactics I'd ever heard in a room. And I think it was because they, she maybe had never seen it on a black person before, but it was like, mm -hmm. this is, this is terrifying, blah, blah, blah. And then I call my mom a couple of days later and she's like, shame on that person. All you need to do is this, this is something you can resolve at home. And this person, yeah. this person was trying to convince me to talk to all of these like specialists and I needed to get in quickly, who knows what'll happen. And I was like, why can't you just <laughs> look at everybody when you're talking to them about their healthcare? Why are you basing this standard on just white people and what you've seen in just white people isn't it your job to be able to treat everybody as much as that conversation and that narrative continues to be amplified it doesn't seem to be changing thank you for sharing your your story and what it made me think about is there are still in like medical schools today and like dermatology where every example in the medical school's textbook is skin of white people, right? And so it's like, to that point, you can't recognize something. You're not familiar with it because even in the way you were engendered, the way in which you were like reared in the industrial medical complex, like in the learnings within medical school were white centered. And so it's as if like, you don't know how to care for black skin. 
what a travesty. Right. Like, that is terrible. Like, you are telling me then you are not a, a fully learned like dermatologist, doctor. And it's like, oh, you, you could come from the best medical schools. I'm like, but if you haven't seen these, you weren't taught these, I'm like, you don't have a full education. And that's scary as hell. And why it's like imperative, integral to some of this change is that there are more clinicians that look like you and I. Yeah. Like it's, thank God for Doc McStuffins. My daughter's like, oh, well, yeah. Like she she had this um, quick story. She, she woke up, this is probably like two weeks ago, crying in the middle of the night and like, Dada, my ear hurts, my ear hurts. Uh-huh. And I'm like, damn, is she, does she have like an earache? So we're like, you know, it's not resolving. I'm like, all right, let's, let's take her to the hospital. Cause like the one thing that COVID has done is anything you're like, I don't know, this could, yeah. be, this could be COVID. Right? Yeah. And, and so, you know, we bring her in. By the time that we get into the car, she's chatting it up like, oh, it's so dark outside. And I'm like, how am I? Like, <laughs> what happened what happened you to you feeling here? good you know you you seem okay but she goes in and there's a PA who's like oh this is my stethoscope and she's like I know and it's like having seen Doc McStuffins having seen this little black girl who's a doctor for her toys made her comfortable in almost being there and and maybe I wouldn't use the word advocating but she had a sense of herself within like the exam room yeah, and not this fear or apprehension, but she's able to be like, yep. Okay. Like, okay. What I'm going to do now is she's like, okay, you can blood pressure. Okay. And I'm like, damn, (laughs) damn Doc McStuffins. Like you did that because I didn't grow up seeing any black doctors. Right. Right. And I'm like, and so it's so incredibly important that they exist. Yeah. So that when we go in, there's a, a certain level of understanding the cultural nuances that like we can talk about some things in a way that I don't think you can when there isn't cultural concordance between the patient and the doctor. I'm like, it's just there. It, you you get me and I can yeah. talk about these things. And, and it's not met with like, you don't know what you're talking about as the patient. or you're non-compliant you're not adhering to this or that or like do I need to talk to someone else you don't seem to be understanding god forbid you speak a different language other than English right so it's just it's it's super important I think as part of kind of health equity and transforming the healthcare system is that we have clinicians of color yes that that makes me think of when I first uh, joined the company I work out, we have we have um, wellness uh, resources, therapy being one of them, you reach out to this program, and then they'll designate you a therapist. And when I sent the message, I was like, I would like a therapist, woman of color, preferably a black woman. Mm-hmm. And I got an email back that was like, we can't, <laughs> we can't filter by that, you know, almost like how dare you get us to look at our uh, therapists as different colors. It was like a very colorblind kind of feeling email. So I don't think they expected me to send a book back to them. 
<laughs> in what they needed to do to change their organization to actually make it inclusive and an actual helpful tool for people of color at the company. I was like, you do need to be able to do that. And you do need to be able to align me with who I'm saying I identify with. It is important. I can't show up to an appointment and talk about the microaggressions at work with a white person who's going to be like, now explain to me what a microaggression is. Like, I can't, I really have done it before and will right. not again. And so like, I, I don't understand why I'm getting hit with all of this blame for bringing up the word black. <laughs> and I think like, they even said like, B. they were like, well, I mean, I'm not sure if we have African-American therapists. And I was like, that's cool. Get me a Nigerian one, a Haitian one. I honestly have a lot of different other <laughs> like identities that I could probably make work. It doesn't have to be African-American. I'm pretty sure that email confused them. But it was just this long thread of like, I don't understand why you don't think this is important. I don't know why I have to justify this to you and have to explain my trauma in order for you to get to a point where you really understand and care what I'm talking about. That is the real big difference between equality and equity. And I think oftentimes organizations, people, well-intentioned, well-meaning, are looking at it from an equality lens as if we're asking for the same thing. Like, we're asking for the same treatment. I'm like, that's not what I'm asking for. Right. I'm like, I'm asking for the right treatment. That's right, right for me. And it's so critical to caring for people of color that it is an equity based approach so that whether it's a language, whether it's gender or, or, or non-binary, um, whether it's culturally, like there, there are so many layers of identity that mm -hmm. people can choose or want to seek their health care from. Yeah. And we should be able to meet that, whatever it is, whatever the ask is, we should be able to meet that. That's how complex the healthcare system should be. And I say complex and not complicated because what we have now is a complicated one. So it's like confusion without a focus. Whereas I think complex, it could be big. It has to be big if we're gonna meet the, the demands and the needs for everyone but it's gotta be able to do that. And it's just not organized in a way where people can't even see beyond how it's been built from yeah. the past to be able to apply that, that equity lens so that we can care for people the right way. Yeah, that is so true. I wanna close the segment with asking, you've, you've spoken about your why and really holding on to that as your way of healing, but I'm curious if you have any like ritual practices that you have as well one of the things i like to do especially if i know i'm going to go into like a a hard meeting in the sense or or, or, or that i need to recenter myself I'm like i'll listen to some like just gangster rap yeah i will just like you know i'm like you hype me up i'm like there is a time and place for that i'm like i need this right now because they're going to test me in a way and I need to be able to show up fortified, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a little quick boost of vitamin C or something, right? It's like <laughs> vitamin G for gangsta. I'm like, give me that so I can boost my organizational immune system and go into this space ready for action. Does that make it harder to code switch? Or <laughs> I feel like once I you have in that in your word. mind and you come in, you come in different. Right. I'm like, listen, my... Uh, sorry, 
Spencer. Uh, <laughs> like, um, I would say, no, no. I, I think we're masters at code switching. Like yeah. we've mastered it. it is, we're masterful with it. We wield it. We get like, we're unbelievable in how we can do it. And I don't think people truly fathom like how incredible where it is like that switch flips. We don't even know when that happens. We just know how to do it. It's so true. The things that come out of my mouth and I'm like, wow, that was the other day I said, I would urge you to take another path. And then I said, what? Who, <laughs> I would, who said that? But also she didn't get mad at me for saying that instead of being like, that statement got me fucked up. Okay. Yeah, uh, right, right. <laughs> what you're, what you ain't going to do. Instead, let's urge them to take another path. Um, the, <laughs> the final segment is to reclose. Uh, it's called I'm Not Sorry. And I ask my guests, you know, this is for when you are taking a break from the healing. You're just you're just trying to escape the whatever is happening in your life right now. And so some people think of it as self-care. But what are your escape tendencies when you're like, I'm not going to deal with any of this. I'm just I'm not sorry. This is what I'm going to do. Right. When it comes to my my family, my wife and my daughter. I grew up where, you know, my mom had to care for us all on her own. And so she worked a lot. And, and we all always say this, and we used to call my mom the warden growing up. She's just a very hard lady, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, she, I get it. She had to be, you know, yeah. raising all these kids on her own um, and, you know, having to choose between nurture and nature. And I'm like, nah, she's gonna, she's gonna fortify us, right? She's like, yeah. listen to Gangster Rap before the meeting. I'm like, she's gonna give us that. What I can do now is I have the privilege not to approach parenting that way, right? Where it's like, I don't have to work multiple jobs. This is a two-parent household. And I'm able to then show up and I can escape with my daughter to wherever imaginary place she wants to take us. And for me, that's unbelievable where I can carve out time to let time kind of just dissipate, let time disappear. Yesterday, I'm walking around, following her around the house with a, a puppet on my hand that was a little bunny. And she was telling me, we're going to go to the beach. We're going to do this. And I'm like, let's do that. But I like there's the, the, the privilege and opportunity to be able to do that. And when anything tries to, now I'm gritting my teeth, <laughs> anything tries to take that time away, I'm perceptive to that. And I try my best, right, not to overwork and mm -hmm. kind of get narrow vision. Because if I'm like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that. But trying to keep that peace, because in whatever number of years, she ain't going to want to do that with me. Yeah. And so I'm like, this is what I have. And so my, my wife and I'm like, let's, let's keep this, let's fortify this little unit because there's so many pressures from the outside world. And certainly her and I feel it differently. We often talk about when I'm like, oh, I cook dinner for the family. I, oh, I changed the diaper. And it's like, oh my God, what a, what a father. He's, he's incredible. My wife would be like, I changed a thousand diapers. They're like, okay, mom. You did, you did what you're supposed to do. And I, and so like all of these things, I'm really conscious of like the outside pressures. Yeah. And so sometimes we're able to be like, let's just do our little family thing. 
Let's go do this. Let's stay inside. Let's not tell people where we are and let's just hang. And like that luxury of forgetting about time is, it's a little liberating. Yeah. It's a little liberating. What would be the the perfect family day for you guys? We'll go to the park. We're right up the part of the right up the street there's a there's a little playground and so she likes to call it a Maya's park so like oh we're going to Maya's park I was like listen I don't want you thinking like this is yours park. other kids like oh the other kids at my park I'm like Maya right like there's a fine line between like you know privilege and like bougie right I'm like ah you know about- I like the energy though yeah. I no, I like my park. I want to go to a Maya's park now I'm like, you can't claim something that other people are already at Columbus. You can't just do that. But like going to the park, being outside together, um, going going for walks, grabbing some lunch. We'll, we'll walk, grab lunch, and then like sit, have like a you know quasi picnic. I'm like, oh, let's just sit and eat in the grass. It's just like these little things that like when I was grown, we just didn't have the the time or the privilege, there was so much pressure mm-hmm. to do all of these other things, right? To survive, to thrive, to do all of these other things. That luxury of time didn't quite exist. And so anything that we get to spend in the day doing, spending that time, right? That yeah. precious commodity of time, like that's what that's what I love doing. Thank you so much for joining me today. I I'm so honored that I get to hold your story and your sister's story and all of the wisdom from your background in healthcare. I just think this is one of my favorite interviews to date. And we just you met. tell everybody that. <laughs> Do I? Did you listen to all the episodes? <laughs> <laughs> this is my favorite interview of the day. I right. Mean- <laughs> no, the, the pleasure, the privilege, the honor was all mine. This is dope holding the space for people to talk about how they hold space. I'm, you know, it, I just love it because I feel like growing up, we did not talk like this. Certainly our, our parents, older siblings, like like people just didn't, didn't talk like this. Yeah. The, the four-letter word, heal. I like that. We, we grew up listening to hearing other four-letter words, but this is good. This is, <laughs> this good. is, this is the one I want to focus on. Right, exactly. <laughs> This podcast is a labor of love, and too often, labor by Black women happens without compensation. If anything in this episode resonated, and if you're taking anything along with you today, please consider donating to our Patreon or sending funds via Venmo. All information is available on that'snolongermyministry.com. Also, wherever you're listening to this episode, please consider subscribing and tuning in to next week's community release. Bye fam.